0: Why do we love God's Word so much? Why do we follow God's Word? Do we follow God's Word because it is perfect? Yes, God's Word is perfect. Chapter 13 verse one says Saul was ellipsis marks those three dots there right dot 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 those are the those are ellipses years old when he began to reign and he reigned for dot 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 and they were two years over israel why do we have these dot dot dots here these ellipses why is something missing from god's word is god's word not perfect god's word is perfect In the original manuscripts, God's word is perfect in the original manuscripts. What we have here is an error of history. We have an error of history. We're missing some numbers. And if you have an ESV, you probably have a footnote like my Bible. It's footnote six in my Bible. I'm not sure yours. And uh, the ESV, the footnote says these numbers, the numbers, the number is lacking in Hebrew and the Septuagint. The numbers are lacking in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, and the Greek Old Testament. But God's word is perfect. Now, our translations might have errors, but all of these errors are very insignificant. Here we have these ellipses, so we don't know the actual age in which Saul ascended to the throne. We don't know the age in which he began to reign, but we do have a witness from God's word that his reign was in fact 40 years old, or 40 years Uh, Paul makes that case in Acts chapter 13, verse 21. It's as if God knew we would lose these marks. And so Paul says in Acts 13, verse 21, Then they asked for a king that is Israel, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. He reigned for 40 years. So we know that Saul reigned for 40 years. We just don't know exactly when he ascended the throne. Uh, But it doesn't... The ellipsis marks do not, the the fact that we don't have these numbers in the Old Testament uh, don't affect the understanding of the text in any way. Any errors that we may have in our translations don't affect any doctrine or theology in our Bible. They're always very minor. Our translations, modern day, for the most part, most modern day translations are as close to perfect as necessary. You have in your Bible, you have in your translation, you can have confidence. Everything in the Bible you hold in your hand, you have everything necessary for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And we follow God's word because it is his very breath that equips us for every good work. Now, what we need to know, moving on from the ellipsis marks, what we need to know from this text is that Saul, King Saul, has finally entered into his reign. He's finally began to reign. And his reign was a promising start. It says in verse 2, uh, he began to reign, right? Chapter, verse 2, and Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. So he's, he, he now has an army. That's a good start. And 2,000 were with Saul and Mikmash of the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with, were with Jonathan. And here's the first sight of Jonathan we see in Scripture. And If you don't know who Jonathan is, you're going to come to fall in love with Jonathan. And Jonathan is a general of a thousand men. So things are looking up. Things were so good, it says, the rest of the people he sent home, they had enough volunteers. Volunteer army, they had enough. Life was good. They even send some home. There's more than enough. Every man to his tent. Things were looking good. And here, Jonathan, Saul's son, uh, proves to be... Proves that he has a great military, that he's a great military strategist. Verse 3, Jonathan, it says, defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah. Now, Gibeah, if you don't know your geography of Israel, Gibeah is right in the middle of, of Israel. It's right in the heartland of the nation. And right in the heartland of the nation, right in Gibeah, there's a enemy outpost And Jonathan knows that this enemy outpost in the heartland of Israel is a threat to Israel's monarchy. It's a threat to Israel's own sovereignty to be occupied. Not only is it a threat to Israel's sovereignty, Gibeah, according to Old Testament law, was a city given to the Arianic priesthood. Jonathan knows that this is a threat to Israel's worship. And so Jonathan goes and fights and he secures Israel's sovereignty. He secures Israel's worship. So things are looking really good. Saul's finally into his reign. He's got an army. He's got a general for a son who's a well, good military strategist. And, and now he's got a victory. And now the land is secure in Israel. And all is Well. All is well in chapter 13, as chapter 12 promised. If you look at chapter 12, verse 14, God promises in chapter 12, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Israel's life in the land was conditional. Do you see that? It's a conditional. If you obey, it will be well. Israel's well-being was conditional. And at the start of chapter 13, everything's good. But I want you to know there is a lurking problem. And it is a lurking problem that is deep down inside of every one of us. And there is none righteous, no, not one. And this original sin is a threat to the conditional nature of Israel's well being. Original sin is a threat. To Israel's obedience. Original sin is a threat to Israel's well-being. Original sin is a threat to all humanity, for the wages of sin is death. Don't forget that when you see these conditionals in Scripture. If only a sinless Israelite could fill, if only, right? If only a, a sinless Israelite could fulfill this covenant and obtain for, and restore to Israel righteousness and life. And of course, we have that in Scripture. We have that true and righteous man. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why we follow God's Word. That's really the answer to why do we follow God's Word. Because the Word gives us Christ. Verse 13, or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 3 Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. That was Gibeah. And then it says, right, bad news, and the Philistines heard of it. The Philistines heard of it. That's not good, right? They knew they would hear of it. You're not going to defeat a garrison and not have the enemy hear of it. And so Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. He knows he needs to, he needs to call back those troops, right? He sent the troops home. Hey, get back. Get, leave your tent. Come back to We got war. War is coming. Verse 4, and all of Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So Saul blows the horn. Now, there's something very interesting happening in verse 4. Saul actually takes the glory from Jonathan, does he not? Jonathan defeated, but Saul takes the glory. I mean, why didn't the king secure Gibeah in the first place? Geographically, Saul was actually closer to the threat. And Saul, from the context, he actually had more troops than Jonathan. So he should have been the one. Saul, as king, should have gone out for Israel. Saul, as king, should have been the one who protected the sovereignty of land. Saul should have took initiative but no, he takes the glory instead. And what's happening here is the narrator, which we have been seeing all along, is really and very subtly, subtly painting a picture of Saul in the worst light possible. You see, Jonathan's success and Saul's lack of integrity here points to deficiency in Saul. And it's only going to get worse from here. We're going to see it's going to get a lot worse from here. And don't forget about chapter 12, verse 14. If your king obeys, it will be well with you in the land. Israel's well-being was tied to a king's obedience. And the text is showing us that Saul was a weak king. Verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore and multitude. And they came and they camped and camped in micmash That's where Samuel, that's, that was Saul's, military outpost. They heard the trumpet. Oh, Saul defeated us. They go to Saul. (laughs) And here we see the weakness of Saul. I mean, do the math. Saul now has around 5,000 troops and the Philistines have 36,000 and counting. There's overwhelming odds These are, the enemy had overwhelming odds. He had a strong force and Samuel was weak. Now, a strong king might be able to overcome this weakness. And we're going to see in scripture that there will be some weak kings and there will be some weak generals or generals who have a weak force, but they overcome the odds. Right? The king of kings faced the worst of odds, death itself. Insurmountable is death, right? Not for the king of kings. But here's a weak king. And weak leaders make for weak, soft, puny military. You want strong leaders. And this was a weak, puny military, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. So they go and they hide. The Israelites so scared they deserted their outposts. They're hiding in caves. They're afraid. Some of the Hebrews that did go with Paul, they're all trembling, it says, verse 7. They're all following Saul, trembling. They're afraid. Now we have to see in this fear, again, chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, God commands them, verse 20, do not be afraid. God tells the Israelites, do not fear, because I am with you. That's chapter 12. That's just one chapter away. Don't don't be afraid. God promises to be with Israel. He promises to surround Israel. He promises that if you cry out to the Lord, if there's a crisis, says Yahweh, cry out to the Lord and I will deliver you. Do not be afraid. If God is for you, who can stand against you? So they needed the Lord's courage. They had it no matter the threat. No matter the threat, they had God's care. No matter the trouble, God was greater still. And by the promise, and by the promise of chapter 12, Saul had every reason to be strong and to make the troops stronger still, to endure, to stand up with courage. They had God's word. This is why we follow God's word. For when we are weak, then we are strong. In the, word, we get a, in the word of God, we get a grace greater than all of our sins. In the word, we get a grace sufficient. It's sufficient for the trouble of the day. That's God's grace. It's sufficient. Whatever obstacle you trust, whatever obstacle that might be before you, God's word is sufficient. Whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever pain, God's grace is sufficient. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, do I believe in the sufficiency of God's grace? The Israelites here, they didn't. And their lack of faith made things worse. It sent them into despair. And when trouble looks big, we don't sink. We shouldn't sink in despair when trouble looks big. No, we need to follow God's word. And when you follow the word, it leads leads you to a God who's bigger. Bigger still than all your troubles. And the word gives you strength in a God who has not abandoned you. Now, we might ask, but why does God allow pain? That's often the question when there's trouble. Why does God allow pain? The word has the answer. God allows pain in your life that you might draw nearer to God because nearer to God is your comfort. That is, God is your comfort, and God is your strength, and God is your shield, and God is your reward. And so God allows pain that we might see our dependence and our need and the glory that we have and the joy that we have to turn to a God who's with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. You see, pain awakens us to our God dependence from where our help comes from. And then in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, we begin to trust and depend on his word. And we depend on that word more and more. And so in the midst of pain and in the midst of the worries and troubles of this world, go to the word. Go to the word. You see, we love so little, but God wants us to love so great. And we often have little, We often have very low feelings for God in times of trouble. But in those times of trouble, remember that God has all the feelings in the world for you. He feels your pain. He knows your trouble. And he has the answer. He has the, he has the hope. He has the grace and peace necessary. Our love of God grows weak at times, but his love is greater still. The love of God is actually overwhelming. The love that the Bible, the picture of love that the Bible gives us is a love of God that's overwhelming. That is, it overwhelms your obstacles. The love of God is overwhelming. It overwhelms your obstacles. It overwhelms your trouble. It overwhelms your temptation. And then when you fall to temptation, it overwhelms your sin with a grace that is greater. And that's the truth of God's word. And follow it and find joy even in the midst of suffering. Verse 7. And the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan in the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. So they're leaving the promised land or some are leaving the promised land. Some have left the promised land. It says that they've gone east. They're going east across the Jordan, and that's not a good direction in the Bible. You never want to go east. You never want to go away from uh, the promised land in the Bible. That's a picture of going away from God. You want to be going west (laughs) in Scripture. They're going east, opposite of the Jordan. They're going away from the Lord and trembling. Why? Because they had a weak king, a weak king leading leading them away from the Lord. You see, God had promised them protection, if only. God says, you will have protection if you follow my word, if you obey my word. And so chapter 12 is a cry, is a call to cry out to the Lord, for he will deliver. Yet at the first sight of trouble, they're vanishing in fear. They have hard times, so they vanish. And we often have hard times, and those hard times cause us to vanish. It causes us to sink in doubt and lack trust in the Lord. If you've ever caved into doubt, anxiety, or depression at the first side of trouble, you need to follow the word. Listen to the word. Psalm 125, our call to worship this morning. The psalmist writes, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. What God is saying here is he will never leave or forsake you. The Lord surrounds his people. That's the truth of God's word. And we follow the word because we find a God who surrounds us with his love who surrounds us with this protection, and we have peace. Now, back in Samuel, the people are having trouble. But Samuel was coming, verse 8. So Saul waited, it says, so Saul waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Now, that time is the time of chapter 12. In chapter 12, Samuel tells Saul, go and wait for me. So the Lord's prophet gives Saul the word of the Lord and says, go and wait for the war that's coming and then I will bring further instruction. That is, I will bring more word from the Lord and he will guide you. Only wait. And so he waited and things look good. It's like, okay, here's the king. He's trusting, he's waiting in the Lord, but there's one problem. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. That's a problem. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Now, what you must know is that Samuel was coming for a sacrifice. He was going to offer a sacrifice. And in Israel, Israel had morning and evening sacrifices. And it's the seventh day, and Samuel still had time to make it for vespers. He still had time for the evening sacrifice, but Saul's bleeding troops, he's got this overwhelming army ahead of him. And so he takes things into his own hands. The people were scattering. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul knew here in this text, he knew he needed worship. He needed the evening sacrifice. He needed God's favor. But look at the text. He sought it apart from God's word. That's a problem. Us Reformed Christians who love the RPW, we should know this truth, right? We don't want to seek the Lord's favor ever apart from his word. We don't worship God according to to our own preferences and so forth, but his word. Now, this is a problem for Saul. And the problem is marked out by Samuel. He's going to rebuke Saul later in chapter 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, "'Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices "'as in obeying the voice of the Lord? "'Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, "'and to listen than that of the fat of rams.'" We follow God's word because God delights in his church, in his word, following his word, and not just being hearers of the word, but we must be doers of the word. To not be hearers and doers of the word is to be foolish. Saul was a foolish king, verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, here comes Samuel. Samuel came. And here goes Saul, right? He's out to meet him. Oh, hey, hey, what's up? What's up, buddy? (laughs) Just had some worship without you. Just had some worship without God's word and God's direction. Everything's good, right? No. And Samuel said, what have you done? So Saul believed worship was essential. Do we believe worship's essential? Amen, right? Worship's essential. What we're doing in church is essential business. And the essential business of the church is the word of God. It is the word of God that makes us essential. Yet Saul forsook God's word. He took matters in his own hands. He knew worship was essential. He believed it was essential, but he believed prophetic direction was dispensable. And when the chips were down, Saul realized that his kingship could function on its own. He's realizing that his kingship can function without Samuel on his own because things looked bad. He's bleeding troops. He took matters in his own hands. And I can't help think of American religion. American history is the history of the church taking matters into its own hands. It's the church reimagining itself in light of culture and what feels right, not what is right because that's what the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years. And post-modernity doesn't have time for the past because we are masters today of our own time and destiny. We are masters of our own destiny as post-modern peoples. Post-modernity is the taking matters into our own hands. That is post-modernity. Post-modernity is the taking of matters into our own hands where man is sovereign here, and you dare not interrupt our sovereignty with talk of the truth. But God's word calls us out of this world. God's word calls us out of this time to a timeless place. Timeless worship. That is worship that is fixed by God's word. If worship is fixed by God's word, it should look like the same in all times and places. Because it's heavenly worship. It is a heavenly place. We're called out of this world, out of the time itself, out of this culture to a heavenly place, a heavenly time, a heavenly moment, the Lord's day, the Sabbath. Worship should fix our minds on the truth and settle our lives on the faith once and for all delivered. And here we're not masters. Here we're unworthy servants. Here in worship, we're unworthy servants, but we're blessed with infinite grace and glory. And it's something this fallen world will never understand. St. Augustine said it best. St. Augustine, the fourth century saint, Church theologian par excellence said, without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? We follow God's word for truth and peace. Now listen to Samuel's question one more time. You might even want to underline this question. Listen to the question. Samuel said to Saul, what have you done? Does that sound familiar? What is this you have done? It's the exact same Hebrew phrase in Genesis 3. After another couple took matters into their own hands, the Lord came to Adam and Eve and said, what have you done? And here we return to the garden and the covenant of works. And there is a tragic parallel in this text between Saul and Adam. You see, both men were heads of a particular people. Both, he- both were heads of a people. Both violated God's commands. Both expressed an unwillingness to take personal responsibility. Both blame others. You were late. It's your fault. Adam and Eve, it's the woman you gave me. It's the devil who deceived me. Both took matters into their own hands. And just as Adam and Eve failed to obey God's word and merit paradise, so Saul failed to earn the promised land. And there goes chapter 12, verse 14. If you obey, it will be well with you. And there were consequences for his disobedience. Verse 13, he says, you have not commit." He says, and Samuel said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then, here's the consequences. For then you would the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam failed to earn paradise, everlasting life with God in paradise. Here Saul fails to earn an everlasting kingship in the land. And these parallels are not accidental, brothers and sisters. These parallels are not accidental but result from a consistent theological perspective in Scripture. And that perspective is this. The kingdom of God must be earned or else. Heaven must be earned. It's not a right. It must be earned or else. And hell is a reality. And we are saved by works. We are saved by the works of the king of kings. And we see, we follow the Bible because in it, a king is promised who has come to earn heaven for us. We are saved by Christ's good works. Verse 14, he says, but now your kingdom, Saul, your kingdom shall not continue. Now, notice this next sentence, very important. You might highlight under light. But the Lord has sought out a man, out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. Now, the fact that the Lord is seeking out a man after his own heart means that chapter 12, verse 14 is still on the table. That conditional, if you obey, it will be well with you. Now we have a man after God's own heart promised. So that is keeping the table, is keeping on the table. There's still hope. There's still opportunity. There's still hope for a future. Because surely a man after God's own heart will keep the conditions, right? Exactly. Israel still has hope for surely this king and he did. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the focus of Scripture. Why do we follow the word? We follow the word to Christ. We follow the word to Jesus Christ. We have a man after God's own heart coming. But for now, Israel was stuck with a without king. What's a without king? Well, it's Saul, and he is without the word. Verse 15, and Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Here is Saul. He's without the word of God. He leaves Samuel. We don't see Saul repenting. We don't see Saul turning to the Lord, asking for forgiveness. We see Saul leaving Samuel. That is, Saul is leaving the Lord's prophet. He's leaving the man of God who brings God's word. He's leaving God's word. This is the most tragic tragedy in Saul's life. He's without God's word. And then Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. He's without an army. He's barely got any men left. He's a without king. He's without the word. He's without an army. In verse 16, and Saul and Jonathan his son and his people who were present with him stayed in Gibeah and Benjamin and the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And it says raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies, one company towards uh, Oparah, Ophrah and the land of Shual. Another turns toward Beth Horon and looks down the valley. Basically, geographically, they're surrounding. They're surrounding him. This is siege warfare. So he's without the word. He's without an army and he's without help. No one's coming to help. And it's worse. They're without weapons. So there were siege warfare, verse 19, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel and the Philistines, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords. But every one of the Israelites, they had to go down to the Philistines. They had to, they had to sharpen their farm equipment so that they wouldn't have weapons. So verse 22, so on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people. So he is without king. He has hardly any army. He has no help from the Lord. He's surrounded. No help is coming. He has nothing but but troops who are trembling and in fear. Most of them have departed and deserted him. And those who, who left are without weapons. He's a without king. He's without God. He's without hope. And things have gone from good in chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 13, things were looking great, but now utter despair. It started off well, but now in the face of an invisible foe, many of the troops defected, many of them demoralized, it's siege warfare, Israel's finished. That's the picture, it's a gloom picture. Israel is finished. Except this one thing, and it's a powerful thing. And it's the word of the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 22, the Lord says, I will not forsake my people. Though you can be faithless, though Israel will be faithless, God is saying here, I will be faithful. So when we take verse 22, chapter 12, verse 22, when you take that verse that the Lord will not forsake his people, and then you combine that with chapter 13, verse 14, a man after God's own heart is coming, you put those two verses together, you know what you get? You get Jesus Christ, right? You get the Savior. You see, because these verses are pointing us to King David. And King David looks straight to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Jesus is the true man of God. Jesus is the true Israel. He is the eternal King. So he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in his obedience, his sacrifice, a kingdom was secured. And in his resurrection, the kingdom has come. When that tomb was rolled away and Christ rolled out, the kingdom has come for the Lord has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And we follow God's word because in its pages, the kingdom comes today. And especially through the preaching of the word. When God's word is rightly proclaimed, it's the king's speech and it brings the kingdom. For faith comes by hearing, doing, working, serving, hearing. You see, some build kingdoms by getting busy. Get busy, do more. And the gospel's a stumbling block. Others build kingdom by their own wits. We know better. The gospel's foolishness. For those who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. So we follow that word. For those who are being saved, the word of God is essential business. And the essential business of the word is salvation. And through the word and sacraments, we got all we need for body and soul and life and in death. And this is the word of the Lord that gives us the eternal word, the Logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we behold his glory The glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And we behold that glory in his word. And in his word, he directs and leads us into life righteousness. And in his word, we find that we, that he has obtained for us and restores to us righteousness and life. What else do we need? We have the word of God and it is sufficient. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.